Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. Seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hey there, aviation fans and geeks. Welcome to this week's edition of Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, your new co-host, along with my always insightful and always airline geeky other half, Ben Beldanza. Thanks, Chris. As we start this podcast, I just want to say that I think all of us listening hope for a quiet, uneventful week as the government in the U.S. transitions to Joe Biden's new administration. As we record this, the week is just starting, so let's all think good thoughts. And with that, Chris, we've got a lot of ground to cover this week, so I'll turn it over to you to get us started with the news roundup. Amen to that, Ben. Well, there was lots of chatter that flowed from Delta's Q4 and year-end results and their investor call on Thursday, January 14th. As they've done consistently the past several years, Delta's results and outlook set the bar for the rest of the U.S. industry. As expected, Delta posted a significant full-year loss, in this case, $15.6 billion on revenue of $17.1 billion. But they ended the year with $16.7 billion in liquidity, and that doesn't include nearly $3 billion coming in March from the payroll support program enacted by Congress last month. And they avoided involuntary furloughs. They halved their cash burn in the fourth quarter. They drove a revenue premium with their continued blocking of middle seats. And they expressed optimism that they will turn to profitability by this summer. Ben, there was a lot more to the story here, but wondering what your high-level reaction was, not just to the Delta numbers, but also their commentary on the call. Well, thanks. I listened to the call and I read the release and I was interested as to how positively they spoke about the return of traffic. I was a little taken aback, although not totally surprised that a you know, almost $16 billion loss on $17 billion in revenue. When you do that math, that doesn't look too good at all. But it is a an improvement over where it was and not unexpected given where the industry is right now. The biggest thing I had pause with, Chris, now Delta has outperformed certainly their larger competitors and a lot of the industry for many years now. And so they do set the bar, as you said. But their commentary that travel is going to come back by the summer, and they said maybe cash break even by the end of the second quarter. Now, they did say maybe. They didn't say they didn't commit to that. But I think cash break even by the end of the second quarter would be a real tall challenge for Delta, given their cost structure, given their that they're continuing to block middle seats, which is great for customers, but still doesn't allow them to sell about a third of their product. And just given how far they still are from that, without a major change in cost structure, which I don't see happening there, without a massive increase in fares, which I don't see happening either, it seems to me that the only thing that could make cash break even happen for Delta by the second quarter is a big, big increase in the number of people flying. And given the rollout of vaccines, the timing of the rollout of vaccines, I think the end of the second quarter is a little 
ambitious. So I wouldn't be surprised if they missed that cash break even target. I also wouldn't be surprised if they missed their profitability by middle of the year target, but they are getting better. And I'm guessing, Chris, that these numbers are going to look better than we see from their major competitors over the next week or two. What's interesting about Delta is they really walk like a winner and they walk and talk like a leader. They're obviously very bullish on the business. They're smartly managed, but they also you know, pivoted to talk about other things. They talked about their continued investment in customer amenities and onboard Wi-Fi. They weren't shy about talking about what happened in Washington last week. So uh, you know, in, in general, I was impressed by not just how they characterize the results, but also kind of how, to, how they try to frame the future moving forward. I agree with that. They were positive. They did show leadership. The other comment they made, Chris, that I thought really showed industry leadership was when they talked about sort of emerging to be a 15% smaller delta. That's a number I'm sure they thought a lot about and whether or not to state that publicly or not. But I think their decision to say they're going to sort of emerge 15% smaller was really both a message and maybe even a challenge to the rest of the industry. Sort of saying, and this is all my interpretation here, this is not what they said, okay? But I heard that as we know all this demand isn't coming back. We know some business travel may not come back for a long time. We know long haul travel is especially challenged. So if we all bring back all of our capacity, all we're going to do is really just force really low prices and it's going to hurt all of us. So we're going to come out 15% smaller. What about you guys? Now, again, they didn't say any of that, but that's what I heard in that messaging. Yeah. So Ben, related to the Delta results, kind of, sort of, um, and I know this is an awkward rope for you to walk here since you sit on the board of JetBlue, but also another news item last week was the DOT approval of the JetBlue American Airlines Alliance. What are your thoughts and what does that what does this mean for, let's say, Delta? Well, I think it is quite related, actually, Chris. You know, as you look at New York especially and what's happened over the last 15, 20 years, the growth of First Continental and then United at Newark into a big domestic and international hub, the slot swap with then U.S. Airways that Delta did that gave Delta a big group of the slots at LaGuardia and their buildup of that as a hub, LaGuardia, I mean, and the focus on the business travel, the creation and growth of JetBlue in JFK with a nice new terminal at the time and building a a leisure base out of JFK, including New York to the Caribbean, which at one point was a real strength of Americans. All of those things have put a lot of pressure on American airlines and in some ways has almost marginalized them in New York. So with this deal, I think, as the DOT recognized, is really positive, I think, for both JetBlue and American and that it takes assets that are limited slots and gates and things like that allows JetBlue to fly a lot of those at a much lower cost structure and with lower fares, ensuring that New York, even as a constrained place, has good competition to United and Delta. And I think the DOT saw this as a way for an airline to compete with 
United and Delta in New York with JetBlue's costs and lower fares and customers like JetBlue, obviously. So I think this deal allows American to focus on where they can be more profitable, sort of not having them have to focus on what used to be a strength for them, but hasn't been a strength for quite a while, and gives JetBlue's employees more flying, gives JetBlue ability to put more airplanes in the air, and customers more ability to get lower fares with JetBlue. So overall, I think the DOT saw this as a truly customer competitive deal. And I know JetBlue and American are both very happy that they approved it, and now it's just making it happen. But it does increase competitiveness in New York for sure. Well, we know that Delta certainly likes to compete, so I'm sure they've got some things up their sleeve too. Uh, switching, yeah, gears, sure um, switching gears, we, we also picked up some interesting data from OAG's monthly capacity and frequency report for January. Yeah, I, I know for our geeks, spending time with OAG data can be like a day for Charlie at the Chocolate Factory, uh, but one little morsel for full year 2020, US-Mexico flights were down only about 1% year over year. But some intra-European flights, like between the UK and Spain and between Spain and France, were down nearly 75% year over year. So, uh, oh, wise one, Ben, uh, what do you make of these numbers? You know, these OAG reports come out every month. And before COVID, it would, they were sort of a yawner. Here's the biggest markets in the world, and those didn't change very often. And here are the biggest airlines in the world, and here's how much everybody's flying year over year. And you know, up 3% one year, things like that. But since COVID, these reports have been really interesting because you see where airlines are at least putting capacity, not necessarily where people are flying, but you assume those things are related. And so I, I thought this was really fascinating, the fact that domestic Europe is still down 75% versus last year tells you just how seriously they still see this COVID crisis and how limited they're making and allowing travel in and among the countries there. Also, obviously, there's opportunities for trains there that there aren't as much in the U.S. But I think sort of the Spain, France, and both those countries to the U.K. being down so much is just a fact that People in Europe aren't moving out of their houses, just like people here aren't moving all that much. The U.S.-Mexico numbers only down 1% surprised me it was that small. But Mexico's close. There's lots of beaches. It's warm. There's places you can go and not necessarily be in big crowds. Like Mexico isn't all Mexico City, right? There's a lot that's not that. And so that people might be looking for places to get away, but maybe relatively safe in the sense of not big crowds and things like that, Mexico probably makes for a pretty good opportunity. And then you add to that the fact that American has been more aggressive about adding capacity than most other big airlines, and they fly a lot into Mexico. And then low-cost carriers like Spirit Frontier and then in Mexico, Volaris, are also all flying more. And Volaris has a lot of capacity now from Mexico into the U.S. So when I thought about who's flying there and why you might go there when you're not willing to go to Europe or Asia or somewhere yet, and you can't really go to Canada, it didn't totally surprise me, but I still think that almost flat number year over year was still a bit of a surprise. Yeah, and Mexico for the most part has been under the radar with regard to outbreaks where certainly you know we've read about and heard about and witnessed multiple surges in various parts of Europe. So I think they benefit from that as well. I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. 
Chris, another item in the news was Norwegian Air announcing the end of their long-haul flying, eliminating all of their transatlantic flying. That means we're not going to see Norwegian airplanes in the U.S. anymore. Norwegian had filed sort of the equivalent of Chapter 11 bankruptcy in November in Ireland. There was some speculation that it was going to use this 100-day restructuring plan to pare back its fleet and network, but the complete abandonment of the long-haul market Certainly was a surprise to me and I think probably to some others. As proposed, the company envisions a reduction of the fleet from 140 airplanes down to 50 as they retool and refocus their efforts on the European regional market. And that suggests to me they're likely to all become an all narrow body airline, too. Well, I think my biggest surprise was kind of why this took them so long. It's going to take a long time for these transatlantic markets to to rebound and They've really been focused on so many secondary markets like Austin, Texas, and Hartford, Connecticut, and Tampa, Florida. And for those of you who live there and the mayors and anyone else who's listening, I, I know these are important cities and I know you like to boast of international service, but with so many international routes on life support right now, I just don't see a way for these routes to be profitable for the foreseeable future. And so this was somewhat inevitable. There were always questions about the Norwegian business model and whether it was sustainable, even in the best of times. So uh, again, not all that surprising. You never like to see people lose their jobs and you like to see failure, but as the industry shakes out and recovers from this pandemic, as you you talked about uh, previously, we really need strong airlines. We need them to be profitable and we don't necessarily need weak ones chasing passengers just for cash. I, I think certainly in the European market, there's in the European U.S. market, there's going to still be plenty of discounts for a while for consumers to find bargains, even without Norwegian uh, flying those routes. But what I'm more curious about is what are EasyJet and Ryanair and Eurowings and Wizz Air, you know, what are they going to do now? Because that intra-European regional market is pretty competitive. They've got some pretty strong carriers. Uh, and as we talked about, intra-European air travel is not exactly booming. So I don't know if this is a successful path for Norwegian. That's a great point, Chris. You know, the long-haul market, going back to that for a minute, long-haul low cost has been a challenge. Even when the industry was making really good money in sort of 2017 to 2019, for example, Norwegian was sort of at best break even. And people even then were asking, well, if these are the best of times for airlines and this airline can't make money, what's it going to do when things get bad? And now we've seen what they're going to do. And as they go into the domestic market, they're just going to face a brutal, brutal market. Ryanair uh, is a very low cost airline, as is Wiz. Those two airlines are exceptionally well run as well. And they're also very disciplined about not flying things that don't work and managing cash and strong balance sheets in both cases. So I would see, just as we've seen low-cost carriers in the U.S. sort of flex their muscle a little bit, Southwest moving into Chicago and Houston International, as we've talked about a couple times on this podcast, and Spirit growing a lot and JetBlue doing a deal that makes them bigger in New York, right? Those kind of aggressiveness by low-cost carriers, you're going to see that and are seeing that in Europe as well. So Norwegian may say, 
I can't make money flying big airplanes long haul, so I'll focus more closely. But then they're going to look out the window and say, wow, this is a really tight market. So unless they can get their costs as low as Ryan and Wiz, unless they can do something to make customers think why they should fly them instead of those airlines, when those airlines are working hard to try to keep and grow their customer base, I don't know that... uh, I don't know that I disagree with Norwegian's plan that this is their best option, but that doesn't mean it in absolute is a good option for them. Exactly. And now they've kind of signaled what their plan is. And I'm sure those uh, European competitors are busy trying to figure out how to respond. Well, that's exactly right. You know, Chris, we love it when our listeners ask us questions. If you have a question for us, you can call us at our new phone number at 202 964 0177 and record a question. We'll play it on the air or you can email us. That address is questions at airlinesconfidential.com or submit your question via our website at airlinesconfidential.com. So speaking of questions, it's time to take a few. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. This question is from Mark in Annapolis. I was wondering if there's a federally mandated limit on the time any pilot can be out of the cockpit during a flight. I was on a flight late last year and one of the pilots came out for a bathroom break, which is understandable, of course. But I was somewhat alarmed as I watched the pilot before and after his bathroom break stand and chat with the flight attendant, while another flight attendant took his place in the cockpit. While most airlines have initiated this process after the German wings crashed several years ago, I'm a frequent flyer, and I have to admit the longer the pilot remained in the cabin, the more uncomfortable I became. I was wondering if there was any actual FAA regulation that limits the amount of time or activities of a pilot when they leave the flight deck while in flight. Ben? I thought this was a great question, Chris. And when I have a question I don't know what to answer and it comes to regulations, the first guy I look to is my friend and colleague, Peter Pettish, who's a labor attorney uh, based in uh, at Littler here in DC, where I am. And not surprisingly, he got me the answer, which is in the FARs, the Federal Aviation Regulations, and specifically 121.543, it addresses flight crew members at the console and at the controls. And I'm not going to read the regulation to our listeners, but basically it says when you're in the airplane, you need to be in the cockpit at all times, except for three situations. One of those is if your absence is necessary for the performance of duties in connections with the operation of the airplane. So for some reason, the pilot has to leave to go check something, you know, another part of the plane that's part of the duties, they can leave for that. And then it says if the crew member's absence is is in connection with physiological needs, so that would mean going to the bathroom, right? (laughs) And then it says if the crew member's taking a rest period and relief is provided, and what that refers to is on longer haul flights, airlines use what are called augmented crews, meaning they have more pilots than the two needed. And while two are flying, one is resting, usually in dedicated quarters underneath the main cabin. And so obviously the pilot doesn't have to be in the cockpit when he's on legal rest for that. So this is a real interesting one. The regulation does not state a specific time. It doesn't say you can't be out more than five minutes or anything like that. But it specifically says you have to be 
in the cockpit unless you're doing one of those three things. So the only thing I could imagine this pilot would do is saying that his chatting with the flight attendant was maybe meeting another physiological need. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Peter is always uh, on the mark with his interpretation, so you went to the right guy there. As I read this question and I was kind of picturing it, and we've all seen the scenario, look, it's just a skittish time and you know, dude, get back to work. Okay. That it's just, it's just that simple. Get back to the cockpit and do your job and chat later. So I think it's just recognizing we have a lot of skittish travelers right now. It's a very tense time between COVID and unrest and whatever else. And so be cognizant of your surroundings and the fact that your passengers are watching you. Well, Mark certainly was right. Exactly. Uh, The next question is from Dan in Indianapolis, and it touches what we talked about at the top of the show regarding Delta's results. Hey, guys, I'm a longtime listener, and I love the show. In Delta's 2020 financials, I noticed that their yield remained unchanged from 2019, 17.55 cents, down slightly from 17.79. However, the PRASM was down 38% year over year from 15.35 cents in 2019, to 9.59 cents in 2020. I'm thinking the big PRASM reduction is directly related to the loss of the middle seat by company policy, while the yield, obviously, is only linked to butts and seats. But, haha, I'm astonished that the yield has held up with all the downward pressure of 2020. I've seen other carriers' yields being much lower in Q2 and Q3 2020 versus 2019. We'll have to wait a couple of weeks to see others' financials. Can you walk us through the relationship? Well, this is a real interesting question. And this is the kind of stuff we talk about in my class at George Mason University, actually. So to answer this, let's just remind listeners what these terms actually mean. So yield is the price customers pay per mile. So if you pay $100 to fly 100 miles, you, your yield is 100 divided by 100 or a dollar. That would be your yield. That would be a very high yield, actually, to pay a dollar per mile on U.S. airlines. But that's, that's what yield is. So as Dan points out, yield only refers to the people on the plane and what they paid. And it kind of ignores the fact that there are seats not filled. Whereas PRASM, which stands for Passenger Revenue Per ASM, that term looks at all the seats on the plane and how far they fly. PRASM is a more relevant number for airlines to look at because it costs them money to put all those seats in the air. So PRASM measures how much revenue do they get for every seat they put in the air. So I think he's actually correct when he says when Delta's not selling all their middle seats, that leaves a big denominator in terms of the ASMs, but there's no revenue associated with those seats. So I think that's a big reason that the RASM is down so much for Delta. But it also suggests that the people who are flying right now are paying about the same as they paid last year. And that's not completely surprising to me. Because if you think about the fact that there's not a lot of discretionary travel happening yet, the people on airplanes kind of have to be there. So even though demand is not that high, 
airlines have been able to keep fares relatively high because the people who are on, are on airplanes right now pretty much have to go. Because if you don't have to go, people aren't flying right now. So it doesn't really surprise me that their yield, which is the price people are paying per mile, is kind of flat year over year. If they paid 200 bucks last year to go from Atlanta to Louisville, they're going to pay it this year if they still have to go from Atlanta to Louisville. But without all the seats filled, that really puts pressure on the per ASM kind of metrics like Prasm. This is a very insightful question from Dan, and I think it gets to Delta's big loss number. The fact that they're creating costs for every seat they put out there, but only creating revenue for maybe about two thirds of those seats. Yeah, I want to give Dan our Geek of the Week award. That was a, a very insightful and, and and carefully thought thought through question. So I thought it was great for us to discuss. I agree. And Dan, if you ever want to be a guest in my class at George Mason, you'd be more than welcome. I think you'd fit right in. <laughs> Thanks all for listening. We'll be right back. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y capital.com. With Chris Chimes, I'm Ben Baldanza, and this is Airlines Confidential. Finer Wine is next, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. This complaint comes from Shamima from Bellevue, Washington. I'm very annoyed with Emirates. I bought tickets to Mauritius for December, paid in pounds sterling. They canceled their flight. They refunded me in U.S. dollars instead of pounds sterling and refunded about 250 pounds less than what I paid. I am not flying with Emirates anymore. Their customer service are arrogant and unhelpful. So, Chris, is this fine or is this a whine? Uh, I'm somewhat perplexed on this one, but on the face of it, this is a double fine. Emeralds canceled the flight. There shouldn't have been a change fee or service charge or anything else for giving you your money back when they failed to deliver the service. And it's pretty common practice, in fact, generally accepted practice to refund back to the original form of payment, both the channel such as cash or credit, but also the currency. Uh, the listener said she lives in Washington State, so I don't understand why she paid in pounds sterling. Perhaps she purchased the ticket in the UK or from a UK website, or the flight was not originating in the US. So th there's there's more to this story, but these are the kinds of stories that consumer reporters love. Chris Elliott would have a, a field day with this one. Uh, someone needs to look at the contract of carriage in terms of this ticket and maybe consult with the credit card company if they haven't already done so. But this seems quite justifiable to be uh, complaining, and it's just fine to do so. 
I agree with you, Chris. And Emirates is a full-service airline that's known to be a really good service airline. And this just shows you that even airlines like that get legitimate complaints now and then. I, too, wondered whether maybe this was a flight. She bought tickets to Mauritius. No airline flies from the United States nonstop to Mauritius, right? And so uh, and so I'm guessing she was flying through Dubai and whether she was flying Emirates from Seattle or maybe getting to Dubai another way or maybe flying Emirates from London and maybe that's why she bought in Pound Sterling. I agree with you that there's more here than we know, which is often the case with these. Well, that's a wrap for this week's edition of Airlines Confidential. We appreciate your listening. We'd love to hear from you with feedback, comments, or questions. Remember, we have a new phone number, 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the links to contact us. We're also available on all major podcast platforms. Please tell your other airline groupie fans about us and please rate us and write a review wherever you've downloaded the podcast. Till next week, I'm Ben Baldanza. And I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.